Easterbrook has taken exception to this and presumably used some of his boxing skills to teach him maybe a lesson extrajudicially. And welcome to For You, The War Is Over, a podcast about Second World War, Prisoner War Escapes, hosted by me, Dave. And me, Tony. And in this episode, we are looking at Private Robert Henry Easterbrook of the Royal Army Service Corps. Now, we have a little bit about Easterbrook. So we know he was born in Bristol on the 23rd of September 1916. And we also know that he was a train driver. And we think, it's not particularly clear, but we think he was in the Army Reserves from sort of 1934 onwards. It does say that he was an amateur sportsman with a particular talent for boxing. And there are references that he was possibly, during his time in the reserves, a physical training instructor for the army. But his actual service when he's captured, he's in the Royal Army Service Corps, which was the administrative, logistical and supply side of the army. Which, from what we've looked at, it doesn't seem that PT instructor fits into that corps. So we think he was... PT instructor in the reserves and then moved over to the service corps when war broke out but his capture really is part of Dunkirk and the evacuations around that now we've covered Dunkirk in multiple episodes in series one I think with Taylor series three with Embry so I'll touch on it very very briefly but we've all heard of the Dunkirk evacuation. There's been several films about this over the last 50, 60 years. It's essentially the evacuation of troops from continental Europe between the 27th of May and the 4th of June 1940. Now, Easterbrook is actually captured on the 6th of June 1940. And that led me to think that we hadn't actually, the one element we hadn't really covered was what happened to all of those troops that didn't get off the continent. Now, there were several more operations. Dunkirk was Operation Dynamo. There was also Operation Cycle, which was a further evacuation of troops from Le Havre, uh, which finished on the 13th of June. And there was also Operation Aerial, which ran from the 15th of June to the 25th of June. In total, Operation Aerial got a further 190,000 troops from continental Europe back to Britain. So essentially, the French armistice, which was signed on the 22nd of June, ended official evacuation attempts from the 25th of June. However, unofficial evacuations continued for many French ports, and I think the last one that I managed to find was about the 14th of August from one of the Mediterranean ports coming back to the UK. So there was a large number of troops all trying to move off. Now, essentially, one of the major problems with continued evacuation of troops off the continental Europe was that many were effectively stuck in small little areas around coastal towns and ports, many of which were not suitable for evacuation from, for big ships. But equally, there was difficulty in getting these groups to be able to join up. So what we do see from Easterbrook's report is that effectively he had been instructed after the ending of the evacuation from Dunkirk to surrender, but he wanted to try and team up with one of these cells that were down at St. Valery, it was General Fortune, with the 51st Division unknown to him at that time they'd already been surrounded and St Valery also wasn't a particularly good port 
for getting people out. And it's a fair old trek. I mean, we're talking southwest of Dieppe here, and he's obviously up in Dunkirk, north of Calais. So it's a fair distance to try and travel. But returning to his report, he says, We were ordered to surrender at Dunkirk on the 6th of June 1940. I immediately changed into civilian clothing, which I found in the cellar of a house, and burnt all of my army papers with the intention of getting through to General Fortune, commanding the 51st Division at St. Valery. Now, that is interesting. I mean, why do you think he would have wanted to have burnt all of his identity papers at that point and uniform when, in theory, you know, to have been in uniform, he might have stood out more, but if he had been caught, he wouldn't have been left as a spy or something like that. He probably would have still had his dog tags on him to identify himself as a serviceman, but it is a bold move. Yes, to get rid of all uniform, which does have a modicum of protection, legally speaking. However, I suppose he was also trying to avoid being shot at in front of the advancing German army. Indeed. So I can only assume it was in order to try and amalgamate himself into the local civilian population, rather than being identified as a competent. Assuming he reaches the lines once he's rejoined, and he can clearly convince them that he's British and rejoin the army. Well, it seems like it worked, because he, he goes on to say, before I was able to get away, I was rounded up with the refugees and taken to a civilian prison camp at saint So it must have worked, and they thought he was part of the refugees fleeing the fighting. Yes, exactly. And in fact, it worked so well that it gave him his first opportunity to make an escape attempt. Because only two days later, on the 8th of June, he crawled out of the civilian prison camp that he'd been held in with another soldier, who presumably was also in civvies. They managed to get as far as Douai, which is around about 80 kilometres away, when they were arrested and sent back to a military prison. I can only assume that upon their arrest, they wanted to identify themselves as soldiers and therefore avoid some form of other punishment that may have been lined up. It, it doesn't clarify, but there must have been a reason why they chose to identify themselves as soldiers on this occasion rather than as civilians. Yeah, I think we can presume that, yeah. Now, having been taken to Cambrai, he again managed to escape in fairly short order. He'd spent a couple of months working on a working party uh, following his recapture, but at the end of July 1940, so we're talking about give or take two months later, as in the entirety of June and then the entirety of July, he told the guard that was watching his working party that there was a store of wine in the cellar in the building that they were working in, and while the guard went to fetch the wine, Easterbrook managed to slip away. And again, he managed to reach a point just south of Douai, which at this stage was now about 30 kilometres away, but again was recaptured and sent back to Cambrai. So already we're talking about the end of July, barely two months after being captured, and he's made two escape attempts. Yeah. It is an increasingly common occurrence to see this level of dedication and ingenuity. Yes. (laughs) There is certainly a theme emerging of personality traits, of... Cunning. Cunning, determination, and Easterbrook is no different from the rest of them. And indeed, not long afterwards, in August of 1940, so we're only talking a couple of days later, so the beginning of August 1940, he was put on a train bound for Germany. And as the train was slowing down to go through Dortmund, he managed to get out of the carriage window and climb onto the roof of the wagon. On the roof of the wagon? The roof of the wagon, yeah. So it's going slowly through a built-up area, and he takes the opportunity to get out of the carriage window and climb up onto the roof. Now, we have seen others throw themselves out of moving trains at probably significantly more speed than it would have been going through the built-up area. And there is an advantage to that, in that, because the train is moving quicker, it's harder for them to stop the train and come search for them. So you might get a spray of bullets heading in your direction, but it's unlikely the train will stop. 
Mm. Whereas if it's going slower, there's an increased possibility. But of course, it's much safer to throw yourself off a train going at five miles per hour than it is at 30 miles per hour. Yes. So we know with this one it was going slowly through Dortmund, which is in northwest of Germany, and with a driver who was also in the Royal Army Service Corps. And he doesn't give an exact name, but he jumped off the roof of the wagon with this driver and made their way as far as Eindhoven in the Netherlands, which they managed to reach in a couple of days. Now, Eindhoven is about 150 kilometres away from Dortmund. It isn't clear whether they walked or took a train, 150 kilometres in a couple of days seems to be fairly good going. Yeah. But there's no exact clarification on precisely how you managed to make it that far in such a relatively short space of time. There may even have been a stolen bicycle. I I, I wouldn't want to cast aspersions. I I was going to say, it would be lovely to think if we've got another case of bicycle theft, but... There's no evidence to prove it. No evidence, sadly. The one thing he does say about his journey to Eindhoven is he says that during my journey to Eindhoven, I was helped by many Dutch people with whom I left my name and address to be forwarded to the UK at the first available opportunity. As I say, he he states that he has a lot of help and support, but it doesn't clarify what form that help and support may be and whether that was in the form of, and we assume it was, food, drink, shelter, or whether it was also in the form of assistance with transport and travel. It's left very unclear. However, also quite a risky move to leave your address, particularly for the helpers. Absolutely. Nonetheless, having reached Eindhoven, he immediately reported to the mayor, who said he could do nothing to help which was certainly the case because the mayor then locked him in his office while the mayor telephoned the police to report him to the Gestapo. Helpful. Wonderfully helpful. Extremely, yeah. Nonetheless, Easterbrook managed to get out of the window. However, two hours later, he was caught by German police dogs. Now, presumably, they had a scent of him from his time being locked in the room, Hmm. and therefore the police dogs were able to follow that scent. Upon being recaptured, he was then taken Stalag 20A, which is now located in Poland, and was presumably where he was originally destined and bound for when he escaped from the train. Mm -hmm. Being a private rather than an officer, he was, of course, returned to working duties. And while working on a working party there, he struck a guard who had stuck a bayonet into a prisoner of war and removed his rifle. So he'd left the bayonet in and taken detached his rifle from the bayonet. Wow. So the guard has attacked the prisoner of war quite seriously too, mm. left it in, and Easterbrook has taken exception to this and presumably used some of his boxing skills to teach him maybe a lesson extrajudicially. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Unsurprisingly, he was immediately placed under arrest and confined to cells from May until September 1942. May until September? Yeah, so he's kept in the cells for four months under arrest. And we've seen before, with some escapes, that it's warranted only a week in solitary. Mm. Relatively, the attacking the guard versus getting out and escape and causing problems. Getting out causing a week. Yeah. Attacking a guard, months. And in fact, he was being held to be court-martialed and was taken to Danzig and sentenced to three years' imprisonment. However, Dr Marx, who was a Swiss lawyer who was defending them, protested at this sentence. And in November 1942, this was reduced to only six months. Okay, so a question here. I mean, we, we touched on a couple of things in Series 3 with regards to Geneva Conventions and law and order. Now, I think you'd mentioned before that even whilst you had certain amounts of protections as a prisoner of war the rule of law and order still stood. Yes. So if you had escaped and you stole something or murdered somebody or something like that, you were still able to be tried... Under domestic law. Under domestic law. Yeah. 
Now, I'm guessing that the protections of the Geneva Convention, whilst protecting prisoners of war, didn't extend to a little bit of fighting with the uh, with the guards in particular. So would, do you think this was justified under a domestic law court? Well, he was court-martialed, which is not domestic law, that's military law. Of course. And he, he will have struck one of his guards. So, yes, technically that is still outside the remit of the Geneva Convention because that would be tried under military law. Okay. And as much as I am reluctant to be fair to the Nazis, he did strike the guard. He's not denying that he struck the guard. Now, with reason. With reason, yeah. But he did strike the guard. Now, if a private in the British Army struck an MP, a military police officer, mi- yeah. officer yeah. he would be tried under court-martial. Correct. That yeah. is accepted in domestic British law. So there's nothing here that is particularly untoward so far as I'm aware and maybe the extenuating circumstances that reduced the thing was because the German had clearly not been abiding by the Geneva Convention by bayoneting a prisoner of war. Precisely. Right. Yes. So while there is certainly an argument that the punishment was exceptionally harsh, and we certainly know that domestic law under Nazi Germany was not known for its leniency, there clearly was extenuating circumstances. He was tried, as so far as we can tell, relatively fairly under martial law in a court-martial mm. and, of course, did successfully appeal against the ruling of three years. I'm only going to make a presumption here, but I would have thought that if he had been imprisoned for that term, the Geneva Convention would have still protected him as a prisoner of war, even though he would have been in prison rather than a prison camp. It would have had probably still a certain degree of protection, but quite where... The lines were drawn. I'll be mm. honest. I'm not entirely sure. Mm. I'm not a lawyer. Isn't, no, but I'm isn't, certainly not an expert in international law of the early 1940s. It's a, it's an interesting thought as mm. to where that would have gone, as to whether he would have been in a better position, protection wise, within a prison compound, with regards to a prison of war compound. Mm-hmm. What, I'm sure the Red Cross would have had something to say. I'm sure they would have done, and they certainly would have probably tried to keep tabs on him. What the report also doesn't clarify, and this is where we do need to be a little bit careful. To some extent, I'm trying to pay devil's advocate by trying not to instantly condemn what may have actually been a, lit- a legitimate conviction, because he did strike the guard. Hmm. But equally, we don't know if he stuck a bayonet into him while trying to escape, well, which actually would have been deemed relatively reasonable use of force. We saw that in a previous one, didn't yeah. we, where the report mentions that he disarmed a guard and took his gun when we actually found out that he'd killed the guard and there was then a bounty on his head whilst he was trying to get away. So some of these reports do underplay certain things that have gone on. Yes, and there is potentially an argument that Easterbrook may have wanted to fudge some of the details in a report upon his return to British soil when he's reporting to his military superiors. Yeah, I have no evidence either way. We have to be clear, we are speculating on the basis of very little evidence, so we're not trying to cast aspersions on any individual here. We're just trying to make a little bit more light and sense of precisely what happened. Because the fact that he was imprisoned over and above his position as a prisoner of war actually plays a relatively significant part going forward. Indeed, yes. We're just trying to understand precisely how he ended up there and what the legal basis was for that rather than trying to cast aspersions on very little evidence that we have. Yes. Now, I just said that the fact that he was in prison plays a relatively significant part because while he was in the cells at Marienburg awaiting confirmation of his sentence, he and the sapper from the Royal Engineers managed to change identities with two privates. 
Now, they managed to bribe the guard with cigarettes to allow them to go to the canteen for a few minutes before the guards changed over. And while there, they met two privates at the barracks and they returned to the cells in our place. We assume their identities. So having returned to the camp from having been in prison, they remained in the main camp for the night and the next day volunteered to go on a working party. They were sent to work on the railway near Marienburg Station and on the 28th of January 1943, they escaped from there. They wore overalls underneath their uniforms, which they removed in the latrines. So essentially how they escaped was they arranged for other prisoners to go to the bathroom and leave contraband resources for the escape in the latrine. They then went themselves to the bathroom during a toilet break, changed their uniforms and collected what had been left there for them by the other prisoners of war, which included about £10 of chocolate, vitamin tablets and change of clothes from yep. their uniform. Yeah. They also managed to take with them a map and compass which they had acquired from German civilians. They left early in the morning when it was still dark and got out walking towards Gdynia with the intention of getting a ship bound for Sweden. Now this is a fairly standard practice. Get to a port on the Baltics, jump on a ship to Sweden and get across to a neutral country. It's been proven to be successful on a number Mm. of occasions and it certainly wasn't a bad plan to pursue. So they're now on foot in civilian clothing with enough food and vitamin tablets to keep them going for a couple of days, at least to get themselves to the coast, or at least that's their plan. So they crossed the River Vistula by bridge, which was guarded by three sentries. They exchanged a flurry of how Hitlers and were not stopped for papers. So they're, you know, doing reasonably well it's at bold. assimilating. Bold, but, bold you know, yeah. sometimes fortune favours the brave. Correct. So skirting around Dershau, they continued towards Schönwalde. And having left in late January, they arrived there in early February. So they've been on the road for a couple of days on mm-hmm. foot. Having reached there, near the time they met a Pole to whom they declared themselves as prisoners of war and he gave them an address of a farmer living nearby who would help them. They contacted this farmer and they actually stayed with him till May. So they stayed there for three months. And in fact, when they did leave, it was against the farmer's wishes. Okay. Now, having protected them for three months, I think we can safely assume that he wanted to keep helping them rather than he was trying to keep them there. And hopefully they're better nourished and refueled and rested. I mean, they will have been helping on the farm, I would have assumed. But after three months, I would have also thought that the, the hunt for them would have died down. So having left this farmer, he states, we walked through the wood to Rammel, about five miles from Gdynia, which took us two to three days. When we arrived there, we made straight for a working party camp attached to Stalag 20B. Now, I wanted to pick up on this because they've escaped from Stalag 20B, have been on the run for three months, hiding out at a farm, and now they've only broken back into a satellite camp from the one that they've just escaped from. Yes. So they cut through the barbed wire and climbed in through a window, but he does say that we only stayed here just long enough to write letters home, collect some food and clothing. Wow. So yeah, to, to be able to communicate back to family. Yeah, they've broken back into a satellite camp. Interesting move. All fully within the bold description yeah. <laughs> that we've given them earlier. However, as they were getting back out of the camp again, so they're now escaping from their own camp for a second time, by choice. <laughs> By choice. His companion became frightened and decided to return to stay with the farmer. Now, the farmer has offered for them to stay. It was mm-hmm. against their wishes, as they said. So it's not necessarily a bad choice. So Easterbrook is now on his own. And he states, I continued on to Gdynia, where I contacted many French and Poles living in the area who were willing to help me. 
I was dissuaded from boarding the Swedish ship as the Germans were at the time taking very strong measures to guard against possible stowaways by putting dogs on the ships and firing gas shots into the coal bunker before the ships left. Now we saw this happening with McSwain and that took place in July 1943 in his episode. Yeah. We are talking about May-June time in The Escape of Easterbrook here. So the timelines do actually Mm. fit very neatly together. So this was clearly a tactic at the time to try and discourage prisoners of war or others from stowing away on Swedish ships to try and get to neutral Sweden. Yeah. So having been persuaded not to go onto this ship, he decided to remain living in the country near Gdynia and he stayed there for about eight months. This is where it gets very interesting. Yes. Now I'm not saying that it's been a dull escape so far because <laughs> it has been, you know, it's been a very interesting escape so far. He's had adventures. Well, he's, he's escaped several times, then broken back into his camp, sent a letter home and escaped from the same one again by choice. So it's certainly a character, yes. we could say. During the eight months that he stayed in the countryside, he met a Pole and he states, together we organised a resistance group. So we have a private in the British Army who's been under lock and key for the best part of three years during the war. He's managed to escape and be on the run for several months now, and he's unilaterally decided to establish a Polish partisan group in the countryside of occupied Poland to fight the Germans. Yes. We have seen before escapers working with the resistance cells. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gavelba, which we covered in episode 8 of series 3, spent several months in Poland, well, actually in the ghettos, wasn't he, working, mm. working with the resistance there. But this is the first time that we've seen somebody form a new partisan group as part of being on the run. Yes, absolutely. I think there's potentially some really interesting psychology taking place here, actually, because we stated before that he was captured on the 6th of June 1940 at Dunkirk. Now, he narrowly missed out on being rescued at Dunkirk. The last boats left there on the 4th of June, so he was only two days out. However, we're talking about a young, fit man. He was a PT instructor before the war. He was an amateur boxer. He'd served, served six years in the reserves. And professional army yeah. as well through the war. So we're talking about a young, fit, able individual who has done very little fighting and got captured very early on in the war. He's then spent the best part of three years in a prisoner war camp. And with the exception of lamping a guard, has done very, very little fighting. Mm. And at the first opportunity, he has set up a partisan Polish resistance group. Which went on to achieve things as well. Which went on to achieve things, but I think it's very interesting that a man who would have been, presumably by nature, a fighting man, has been denied that opportunity. There's an entrepreneurial spirit here that I like, (laughs) is what I'm trying to say. Yes. So the word was put out that he was a British parachutist sent to organise the resistance movement in the area. Risky if he'd been caught. If that was the rumour yeah, on the streets, that would have been f- shooting territory there. Absolutely, because he's effectively stating that he's a commando. Hmm. Now, it's not true, but he is putting out the word that he is a commando. And we know from the commando order that that is, as you say, very risky because he would have been summarily shot. Yeah, without without uh, any reason to put him in front of a judge or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah. Nonetheless, off the back of this rumour that has been put about, he was able to form a band of about 150 men, which is pretty significant, actually. 
And for the next eight months or so, they raided German farms and collected arms from the foresters, leaving a note of promising repayment after the war. Seems quite a bold promise, but not completely out of reason. But it's not like he was in contact with the British government or any Polish government in exile that may have existed in order to make this promise. Nonetheless, the promise was made. And during this time, we were engaged in various acts of sabotage and were able to derail one German troop train. That's impressive. It's great, isn't it? That's very impressive. By January 1944, so we're talking pretty soon afterwards, placards describing us were posted about the town offering a reward for our capture. And some months later, my companion was caught and shot. Therefore, by January 44, it was considered too dangerous for Easterbrook to remain any longer in Gdynia, and so he set out on his own for Warsaw. This took him about six weeks to do on foot, and eventually crossed the River Narev by the end of February. Now, on the way, he sought shelter with a pole at a small village near Plonsk. And while he was resting there, he sent for the police who arrested Easterbrook and marched them off towards the town. As we were going along, I gave the guard in front of me a push and at the same time threw my hat into the face of the guard behind me and ran off. So he's not been under arrest for a long time and he's managed Mm. to make his escape. However, he does say they fired at me and I was wounded in the shoulder. I received first aid from a Polish farmer some miles away and was able to continue on with my journey. So he has been interested in the process of escaping arrest again. Yes. So when he reached his destination, he was recommended to the Polish organisation by a smuggler who had heard of his reputation. So his reputation has now preceded him. Mm -hmm. He is well known within the Polish resistance. Which is also dangerous. Yes, yes, (laughs) Very dangerous. And so he immediately joined up with them. So he's now joined his second Polish partisan resistance group. And he remained working with them until July 1944. So we're talking about after D-Day. Yes, yes we are. He then goes on to say, During this time, I lived with five other men whose chief job was to shoot traitors. Altogether, I killed 19 men and and women. Yes. He's not attributing that to the group. No. This is his own personal kill rate. Of people deemed to be traitors. Men and women. Yes. So at the end of July 1944, he was fighting with the partisans on the front. And they were attacking the German front where it was weakest. Now, Easterbrook volunteered to go with two Polish colonels to ask for help from the Russians for the relief of Warsaw, which, of course, was ongoing at the time. Mm -hmm. And they managed to contact the Russians, who then sent them on to their headquarters at Minsk. So he's now travelling fair distance. The treatment by the Russians was not good. And this is despite it being allies after the landing. It's not like it was pre-landing, when there was still some tension between the allies. By this stage... There should have been a certain degree of collaboration, yeah. but there was not. The Russians treated them pretty poorly from here on in, as we shall see. I mean, that's that's what I thought when I first read it. I thought, well, it makes sense. Team up with they're the closest allies to you. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it takes several bad turns. So having arrived at the headquarters in Minsk, he states... As soon as we arrived, we were immediately disarmed and our Polish army papers taken from us. I was marched out alone and interrogated by a Russian lieutenant on the situation in Poland. Now, in and of itself, an interrogation of an ally who's come to you, been fighting for the partisans on the front for several months, it's not in and of itself unreasonable. It's the treatment afterwards that it starts to deteriorate significantly. Because after the interrogation, he was put into a cellar with a sergeant cook, 
his boots, shirt and jacket were taken away from him while he was in the cellar. And a few days later, he was sent on a march of what would turn out to be 180 kilometres in his bare feet. Wow. So he's been force marched by his allies, having just given them information on the front from having fought behind the lines for them. So having arrived at the end of this march at the Russian general headquarters, he was given a little bit of freedom and allowed to walk about the village freely, but still without any footwear. Which suggests to me that A, the Russians are just in the habit of treating their allies pretty poorly, but also B, they are afraid that he's going to run away again. Mm. I can't imagine why when they've given him such a warm welcome. And he also says that my head was shaved and my only clothing was a pair of trousers. Now, luckily it is July at this point, but nonetheless, he's not getting a lot of protection from the elements. For food, I was given a bowl of soup and some black bread twice a day. On the 20th of August, he joined up with a private man and they were to then stay together for the rest of their return to the UK. So Mann and Easterbrook were told that the Russians were negotiating their return to the UK with the British representatives. However, Easterbrook started getting tired of waiting and so tried to escape. Suspicious that they were doing so, the Russians doubled the guard around Mann and Easterbrook. They were therefore moved to Sheslin and paid to work in fields. The theory being, of course, that if they were working they were busy, but they were being paid, so it's, I suppose there's a degree of allied camaraderie taking place here but not much nonetheless they decided to save up the funds from this payment to fund another escape and on the 23rd of october they did escape but were recaptured almost immediately while sleeping in a barn not by their guards but by the advancing red army soldiers who thought they were german now they did manage to convince them that they weren't german and therefore not shot immediately but they were handcuffed and kept in a pigsty for a little while before being returned to Sheslin and kept under close guard until the 23rd of november so we're talking about around about a month and on the 23rd of november they were taken to moscow now, the journey to Moscow, as we know, is, is a long distance, but they didn't arrive there for another week and arrived on the 30th of November. From there, they took the train to Murmansk and they left Murmansk on a ship bound for the UK on the 10th of December, reaching the UK on the 18th of December 1944 at Scapa Flow. Yeah, well, I mean, that was quite a... Not a common route for prisoners of war that we've seen. No. But obviously, there'd been, since the Russians had entered the war, a regular service. The Arctic convoys. The Arctic convoys, exactly. Yeah. Backwards and forwards. So that makes perfect sense. Now, a heavy war, particularly towards the end for, for Easter book there. I mean, mm. having complete extremes from being in prison war camp and prison to forming your own partisan group is is certainly a turn of events that we are not commonly going to see no no we see it periodically but it's not common but nonetheless one i have a lot of time and respect for absolutely and in this instance because again we've also seen that particularly with somebody with the rank of a private very difficult to find information like but there's actually quite a lot of information we see i don't think just because of what he went on and did here it does tail off a little bit. I mean, he was recommended for the Distinguished Conduct Medal as a result of his efforts by the British. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the Poles chose not to give him any recognition for his time working in Poland. Mm-hmm. But then obviously after the war, Poland was very difficult politically. What we do know is that as well as getting the Distinguished Conduct Medal, uh, he left the army, became a farmer. He had two children, a daughter and a son, and he stayed in the Bristol area, dying there on December the 1st, 1974. So 
incredible. I mean, that's that's a movie right there, really, mm. isn't it? What was nice to see was actually a quote from his grandson. We like to try and find things about people's character, and we've seen a lot of his character here. But this is what his grandson thinks of him. While I don't think of my grandfather as a hero as such, there is no doubt that all his actions were extremely heroic. I'm sure more people will be inspired to hear of his exploits during the war, and that must have made a big difference to the resistance and war efforts overall. Well, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. If you'd like to subscribe, we're on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, or indeed any of your favourite podcast platforms. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook by searching at F-Y-T-W-I-O. Or if you want to send us a more long-form message, you can email us at F-Y-T-W-I-O podcast at gmail.com.